When my parents moved out to Arizona full-time, my mother began collecting handmade Native American dolls. I should back up a bit. After our first family trip to Arizona, when I was around nine years old, my mom and dad fell in love with all things Native American, cowboy-themed, and Western in general. Year after year, trip after trip, decorations came down around the house and were replaced by bronze statues of buffalo, Hopi pottery, and Cocopelli. Quick side note, the Cocopelli is a fertility god in various Native American cultures. You've probably seen the rounded back flute-playing image before, tattooed on people's ankles, or hanging on the back porch of my house. My daughter loved the image of a Cocopelli. Until a few weeks ago, when she learned that it might help her get pregnant. She's 12, so she thinks it's weird. I hope she continues to think it's weird for another dozen years or so. Anyway, back to the slow and steady takeover of our Midwest home by all things Southwest. My dad is a hell of an artist. I should display some of his work on the website. Maybe with his permission, I will. Even his art became heavily influenced by Native Americans and cowboys. I can remember him taking pictures of stuntmen in Old West towns like Tombstone, Rawhide, and Old Tucson. And then, a few months after the trip, there would be a new drawing of one of those buckaroos on our wall. I can remember, clear as day, being high atop the Hopi Indian Reservation, walking across stone bridges no wider than a yard, just so we could be invited into someone's home to purchase a pot they made or a kachina they'd handcrafted. Those people had nothing, but were some of the kindest, happiest people I've ever met. It made a big impression on me as a kid. My parents always made sure they had cash and were happy to acquire a new piece for our house and even happier to give these folks some sort of income. So I've inherited, or will inherit someday in the very distant future hopefully, Collections of pots, weavings, art, kachina, statues, drums, as well as a love and appreciation for all of those things. I love collecting things. I have a hard time letting go of anything. I have some bizarre collections, like a complete set of serial killer trading cards, and I have semi-normal collections like pop figures and comic books. Some members of my family will tell you it's a problem. I, along with my daughter, who is now a third or fourth generation lover of stuff, would disagree. My mother's love of collecting dolls, among everything else, is what inspired this episode, which is the second installment of the Arizona series. Episode 21, Spooky Skookum and Carved Kachina. So let's get back to the opening sentence of this episode. When my parents moved out to Arizona full-time, my mother began collecting what I assumed to be handmade Native American dolls. It started with just a few, but then the collection grew in size pretty quickly. Like me, she had a bit of an addictive personality. There was no stopping her. And God bless my father, who went along with whatever made her happy. It became so bad that she would have some of these dolls, which she'd win on eBay, sent to my home in Michigan, and then she'd have me mail them to her sporadically. I never minded enabling her, but for the first time in her Southwest and Native American collecting years, I wondered what the heck she was thinking. Skookums, as I'd come to find out they were called, 
are Native American dolls of various sizes and material. Some were plasticky, some seemed more wooden. All I knew is that they creeped me out. Every one of those 2 to 12 inch dolls had eyes that looked to the right, always. Never to the left, never up, never down. They never had their eyes closed, they were never cross-eyed, and there was no escaping their stare. To top it off, some of the women dolls had children on their backs inside of a papoose. Darn it if their kid didn't have that same blank stare off to the right. On a trip to Arizona a few years ago, we entered their home and were welcomed by a mantle full of no less than 20 lined-up skookum dolls. She had decided to display her complete collection for all to see. Side note, I'd come to find out that the display was not even close to her whole collection, but we'll get to that. So I spent two weeks walking by those dolls, all staring to the right, watching my every move. My dislike grew with every passing glance, and I gave her a hard time about them every chance I got. One day these will all be yours, she'd tell me and the kids. I'd take them, sure, and they'd sit in a box marked Grandma Terry's Spooky Skookums, until someday when my own grandchildren could be surprised and horrified themselves. Then she passed away. Then I went to spend time with my dad and begin the process of going through some of her collections. Then, for some reason, as if her spooky skookum spirit had entered my body, I began liking them and wanting to learn more about them. Then my dad and I opened a box and found it to be full of even more skookums and miscellaneous Native American dolls and toys, and episode 21 was born. So let's answer the nagging question on everyone's mind. What? is a skookum. Is it a crudely fashioned Native American doll from the early 1900s? Not exactly. Is it a well-made, intricate Native American doll from the 1900s? Nope. It's something at least made by Native Americans though, right? Sadly, no. But they are from the early 1900s. Skookum Indian dolls were the brainchild of a woman named Mary Dwyer. Born in 1876, Mary wanted to be a teacher when she grew up. She trained to be a teacher in Winona, Minnesota, and taught in a few surrounding cities, including Missoula. While in Missoula, Mary met Frank. The couple married in 1909 and stayed in Missoula until 1912. That's when Frank, at the age of 30, was diagnosed with pulmonary tuberculosis. They'd heard that perhaps the dry heat of Phoenix, Arizona would help with his symptoms. For a short time, it did help, but sadly, before the end of 1913, Frank McAvoy died. They'd been married for less than four years. Mary moved back to Missoula, where she buried her husband and surrounded herself with family. Soon after, she remembered something from her youth. When she was little, Mary's mother would make dolls, modeled after Native Americans, out of apples. Her mom would wrap them in little blankets and give them to family and friends. They were surprisingly popular at the time. Mary decided to recreate her mother's magic and churned out an entire apple-headed Indian village which she put out for display at the local grocery store. Folks loved it, and someone eventually offered cash to buy the whole thing. Mary smartly applied for a design patent in late November of 1913. The patent was granted three months later, just a few days before she turned 38 years old. The patent covered three designs, a male, a female, and a female with a baby. She began producing skookums out of her father's house. Originally, just like her mother had taught her, the doll's heads were made of dried apples. The armless bodies were crafted from wood and stuffed with twigs, leaves, straw, and grass. 
The legs were made from wooden dowel rods, and the moccasins were felt or suede. For hair, she used mohair or cotton string, and typically they would have tiny blankets, jewelry, or other accessories secured to the body. When sales began to take off, Mary partnered with a businessman from Denver, Colorado, named Harry Tommen. He helped her realize that dried apples wouldn't last forever, and plastic or composition was the wave of the future. Eventually, the heads and bodies were made mostly of plastic, and even the feet became plastic eventually. Since I am now a Skookum aficionado, I can tell you that the distinctive feet changes over the years helped discern what decade the doll came from. There is also either a sticker or stamp on the bottom of most of their feet, which also changed over the years, and adds another hint towards the year it was created and its authenticity. If you too would like to become astute in the ways of the Skookum, I'll be posting some fun pictures on the website, curator135.com. Here's another nerdy tidbit for you. Skookum dolls should always be looking to the right. It's weird, as I mentioned earlier, but it means good luck. The few that were made looking to the left are said to bring bad luck. Although if you happen to find one, it's good luck for you because those are the most valuable. So Harry Tommen and his Western company began mass production coupled with a nationwide distribution of Mary's dolls. From coast to coast, you could find Skookums at various gift shops. They were even available in Canada and Mexico. Mary stayed on as overseer of production until her retirement in 1952. Nine years later, at the age of 84, Mary Dwyer McAvoy passed away. So why did Mary choose the word skookum? Skookum is a word that was commonly used in the Northwest and typically meant bully good, which she used as her motto on boxes and advertisements. Apparently, it is still used to this day as slang and tends to mean mighty or excellent. How my mom found out about them or got hooked on collecting them, I have no idea. It turns out that she was onto something, though. A search through eBay or Google will reveal that some of these things are worth a lot of money. I don't believe too many of the dried apple versions are left, and if they are, they are probably very expensive and very smelly. Luckily, we didn't find any of those in the box. What we did find, however, aside from more skookums, was an array of different Native American-themed toys. Companies from all over the world cashed in on the popularity and mystery surrounding Native Americans, or Indians, or Injuns, as they were called by our less woke ancestors. It started with celluloid, which is a type of early plastic. Aside from a couple of big American companies, celluloid dolls were also produced in Germany, France, and Japan. Celluloid was developed by American inventor John Wesley Hyatt and his brother Isaiah in the 1860s. A combination of nitrocellulose and camphor, it was used for everything from billiard balls and hair combs to toys and dolls. One problem, it was highly flammable. Eventually, it was phased out and replaced by safer plastics beginning in the 1940s. Japan was pretty much the only country exporting celluloid dolls towards the end of their run. The two that my mom found are both Japanese in origin. These were generally of lesser quality than the dolls produced in other countries. The New York-based Lewis Markson Company cornered the market on plastic cowboys and Indians during the 1950s and 60s. If you didn't have Montgomery Ward, Kresge, or Woolworth money, however, then maybe you were lucky enough to get a 24-piece set of oddly colored cowboys and Indians from Hong Kong. Non-toxic, 
and safe for those three and up, of course. In the 1970s and 80s, a company from Britain called Detail produced soldiers from different eras and had a special collection dedicated to the American Wild West. I actually have some of Detail's toys laying around here somewhere, but I only ever had World War II figures. The Wild West collection gave you the option of playing as a cowboy, a Sioux Indian, Apache, or even a Mexican. There have been Native American Barbies, Native American Troll Dolls and Smurfs, Acme Plush even made a ridiculous-looking stuffed Native American, which I may need to try to find on eBay. I'll need one to go with my Clemmy and my replacement Clemmy. Alright, let's get away from Native American collectibles made by white people and talk about another thing that both my mother and father loved and still love to collect. Something that, unlike Mary's Skookums, were handmade by actual Native Americans. A kachina is said to be a spirit which resides within the religious beliefs of a few different Native American cultures in the Southwest. Kachina rites are most notably practiced by the Hopi and Zuni people. However, some Navajo tribes also practice the art of kachina doll making. Imagine that there are three layers to kachina. There is the supernatural being itself. And then there's kachina dancers. And then finally, small carved kachina dolls made in the likeness of a specific kachina. Kachinas represent different things in the real world. The Hopi believe that kachinas visit their villages during the first half of the year. Kachinas can represent anything in the natural world, or the stars and galaxies. There are kachina for crops, health, the afterlife, the sun, stars, thunderstorms, wind, and a whole host of other ideas and beliefs. The central idea is that each phenomenon has a representative life force and that in order to survive, one must interact with that life force. It's a link between man and God. The Hopi believe that kachinas reside on top of the San Francisco peaks near Flagstaff, Arizona. When it's their time, the kachina leave their home and come to visit the various settlements and villages. These spirits are then impersonated by male dancers wearing costumes and masks for ceremonies. The first ceremony takes place in February, with the last being in July. The first represents the growing season, with the last ceremony marking the time to harvest. Now, with Hopi Kachina dolls being wrapped so tightly within their religious beliefs, they're sacred and considered ceremonial objects. For someone like my parents to purchase one, Hopi carvers will alter the doll, removing any religious meaning. For the Zuni, the premise is the same, just the times and locations are different. Based on the winter and summer solstices, there's a heavier lean on the importance of weather, especially rain. Instead of living high atop peaks, the Zuni's Kachina are said to reside in the Lake of the Dead. The lake itself is a myth, but it's said to reside where the Zuni and Little Colorado Rivers meet. While the Hopi Kachina Rite is more dramatic and artsy, the Zuni have built up a much larger folklore. It would seem that, at least with the Hopi Nation, most of the Kachina folklore was created in the late 1800s. Kachina figures themselves can be separated into four periods. Between 1850 and 1910, carvers typically used one piece of cottonwood root. With sandpaper and finishing tools being hard to come by at the time, they would use sandstone to smooth out any rough spots. The Kachina figures were painted with vegetable pigment. The proportions generally resembled a human body. Around 1900, the white man came along and said, Oh, these are cool. And more detail was added to make trading them more profitable for the carver. 
Between 1910 and 1930, the carvers were creating much more realistic figures. Tourists from the east would come to the Hopi Reservation and marvel at the detailed carvings. They became quite sought after and a conversation piece at dinner parties. Hopi elders soon put the kibosh on tourists seeing any form of the religious ceremonies, and carvers saw a noticeable decline in sales. Starting around 1900, Indian agents, as they were known, like Charles Burton, made every effort to restrict religious and cultural rights. Go ahead and Google Charles Burton, and you'll read stories about him forcing Hopi men and boys to cut their hair. However, in 1934, thanks to the Indian Reorganization Act, the Hopi people got back their religious freedom. This helped renew the interest in carving Kachina figures. Originally, Kachina dolls were meant to be hung on walls after ceremonies had ended. These newer, different Kachina had arms separated from the body and heads that tilted, giving the once stiff figures more of an action pose. Better commercial grade paints were used, and the dressings were often made of material instead of just being painted on. From 1945 to the present day is considered the late action era. These Kachina feature realistic body proportions and show movement. Starting in the 1960s, carvers began attaching bases to the dolls because they found that the average tourist didn't want to hang them on their wall. Early Kachina figures from this era may have had eagle feathers attached to them. But in the 1970s, the Endangered Species Act and Migratory Bird Treaty banned the selling of Kachina figures that carried any migratory wild bird feathers, so carvers began carving the feathers right into the sculpture. On average, a Kachina doll will cost around $100. Some average between $500 and $1,000. Ornate, detailed Kachina can go for around $10,000. And I read that one very old Kachina sold for a quarter of a million. With the demand came manufacturers. So you can find tiny Kachina in every shop in Arizona nowadays. However, you'll know when you have an original sculpture because you'll either be buying it from the man or woman who carved it, or it will come with a pretty expensive price tag. That reminds me. I often think back to the time I mentioned earlier when my parents brought their little giant-headed, high-sock-wearing son with them to the Hopi Reservation. There's a classic photo of that area I walked across to get to those homes. I'll find it and post it for you on Curator135.com. If you'd like to see some giant collections of Kachina figures, the Heard Museum in Phoenix and the Southwest Museum in Los Angeles both have massive collections. If you're listening to me overseas, the British Museum also holds a decent collection. If you have no idea what I'm talking about and you've never seen photos of Kachina, check them out. They're amazing to look at. I always thought how cool it would be if there was Kachina-themed action figures or Saturday morning cartoons. But alas, these are sacred, and the religious aspect makes that difficult. And if it was going to be done, it would need to be done by the Hopi or Zuni people. Antelope, badger, bean, bear, buffalo warrior, butterfly, corn maiden, crow, hoop dancer, hummingbird, cocopelli, be careful of that one, lizard, medicine man, morning singer, mudhead, white ogre, black ogre, priest killer, rainbow, Roadrunner, Snow Dancer, Sunface, White Cloud Dancer, Wolf, and Zuni Rain Priest. They all mean something to their tribes. And while the religious aspect may not be something I understand, they all mean something to me as well. 
With Skookums, I think my mother found something that she thought was quirky and interesting and reasonably priced to collect. She spent a great deal of time in bed towards the end of her battle with Parkinson's. Internet places like eBay became the stores and homes that she so loved to visit. For me, I've gone from finding them creepy and telling my dad to sell them all to appreciating them and wanting to learn more about them. In Kachina dolls and statues, my parents shared an admiration and reverence for the work that went into them and the intricate detail. I don't think they bought them as an investment. I think they felt honored to own each one, to know the history about them, and in some lucky cases get to meet the man or woman who carved them. I felt that firsthand as they would take me to some of these places. I may not have gotten it at the time, but I certainly do now. So tell me, what kind of things do you collect? I'd love to know. Stop by my website, curator135.com, or contact me on any of the socials. Two things before I go. The first thing is that I've opened up a new store with teespring.com. Amazon, it turns out, is not very friendly or patient with new businesses. If you head to the store section of my website, you can follow a link to my new shop. I'm constantly uploading new designs. And number two, I want to make sure to thank skookumnews.com. It looks like it hasn't been updated in a while, but they had a wealth of information on Skookums and Mary Dwyer herself. Two things that there isn't a ton of info on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed part two of the Arizona series. As always, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you.